0: Love Story, a 1970 film starring Allie McGraw and Ryan O'Neill. Some of you may have seen it. The, the plot line goes something like this. Boy meets girl. Boy and girl fall in love. Girl gets sick and dies. Sorry to ruin it for you, but that's, that is it. That, that it is. That, that is it. The tagline, uh, perhaps you've heard of this, love means never having to say you're sorry. I'll come back to that in a minute. Um, The American Film Institute, AFI, has said, according to all their august wisdom, that uh, Love Story is in the top ten of the most romantic films ever made. Perhaps. But if you want to torture me, glue my eyes open, strap me down, staple me to the chair, and make me watch that movie. And it's not because I've got a problem with romance movies. That is not it at all. It's because of that tagline. It It is not love that means we never have to say you're sorry. It's pride. It's pride. Pride dictates and demands that we will not admit to ourselves or anyone else that we have ever done anything wrong. It's not love. It's pride. Put another way. We, every one of us, every single one of us, struggles profoundly with confessing and repenting of what it is that we have done. We struggle profoundly with, with acknowledging, just acknowledging and, and, and owning how we have hurt another person. Acknowledging and owning that and, and making reparations towards them and with God and in both arenas, horizontal and vertically. That is absolutely crippling to relationships. Both our relationship with each other and with God, our inability, our inability to acknowledge wrong, to confess, and repent. What do we do about that? Well, I want to look at that together here in this beatitude so if you 've got your Bible in front of you i 'd encourage you to to open it and to turn to the first book of the New Testament, the first of our the four gospels that we have, the book of matthew we're in matthew five I, we're moving through this series in the book of Matthew, we have slowed down considerably at this point now that we've hit not just the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7, but the Beatitudes, chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. We're honing in in particular this morning on verse 4, verse 4, but I do want to read verses 1 through 12, again, just to have a flow, a sense of the flow of what Jesus is saying. Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12, but pay special attention to verse 4. Hear now the word of God. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Would you pray with me? Well, as the psalmist says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And we need that. More than we know, we we need that. We need that because the way is treacherous. Full of swamp and cliffs and places where we could get entangled and slip, fall, be injured gravely. We can't see. We can't see where we're going. And we need light upon that path we need a lamp illuminating our feet and we thank you that in your word we we have this we pray that you'd help us to pay heed to this to hear deeply this morning what you are saying would you would have us to hear and to embrace and to take into our hearts oh we pray that you would do that by your grace, through your spirit. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. An oxymoron. An oxymoron is not a dumb farm animal. There you go. There's your joke for the day. An oxymoron rather is defined as a figure of speech in which two apparently contradictory concepts or ideas are put in conjunction with one Another. Let me give you some examples just to try and make the point. New antique. Jumbo shrimp. Reality TV. <laughs> Act naturally. Okay, those are some. Brief ones. Let me give you some some quotes, I think, that that establish something of this as as well. I can resist anything except temptation. Oscar Wilde. I like humanity, but I loathe persons. You feel like that? Uh, Edna St. Vincent Millay. No one goes to that restaurant anymore. It's always too crowded. Yogi Berra. And one more, which may have sounded like this. I just read it a few moments ago. Uh, Jesus' words in our text can sound like an oxymoron as well, and some translate it basically this way. Happy are the unhappy. Now, the problem comes, and we talked about this last week, in translating this word makarios, that rightly is translated blessed, happy is just does not do that justice. Let me remind you what that word actually means. Blessed, to be blessed in, in this sense, that Jesus is speaking of here in Matthew 5 is an objective assessment of a person's state of well-being. It is not a description of their emotional state or where they are with their feelings. Rather, it is... Um, is an assessment of that individual making clear that their life is in accord with exactly how life is meant to be. Therefore, they are blessed. And with that in mind, because they are that, they then ought to be admired and envied and their life ought to be emulated and imitated by us because they are blessed. And that's what Jesus is holding up here. He's making clear with these eight Beatitudes, each of the eight, and all of them as a corpus together, he's making clear how our lives should be, the shape that our lives should take. And with that in mind, with every one of these eight Beatitudes, we should then be striving, longing to heed and pursue what that looks like. In this case, verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, what then would that look like? What would it look like to pursue that, to seek after that, to, to really hear and heed that? With that in mind, I'm going to ask three more questions to get at the answer to that question. What it would it look like? And it's this, almost the same outline as last week with some different subpoints, But it's the same strategy, trying to get at what is Jesus saying here. A, a uh, who, a why, and a how. First, Who. Is Jesus speaking of here when he speaks of those who are mourning? Secondly, why are they described as those who are, in fact, blessed? What makes them that? Thirdly, how? How could it be possible that our lives could look like that? You see? Who? Why? How? Let's look at these in turn. First, who are they? Who is Jesus speaking of here when he said, blessed are those who more. And you need to understand it 's a vital point in, in unpacking these beatitudes, and that 's this: The first one flows into the second one. There's a logical sequence here all through these eight beatitudes. They 're not just like a string of pearls isolated from one another, and you could just pick them and move them around, and they, it doesn 't work like that. They build sequentially and logically one upon the other. So you have the first one there in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now There are common reasons for mourning. Uh, things that we are accustomed to, to seeing in, in our own lives. One would certainly be loss, right? Uh, perhaps the, the loss of a loved one. That would be the mourning of bereavement. Another would be, from a, a mourning because of loss, would be the loss of, of a heart's hope, a dream, an idea, a plan that you had that has now collapsed down to the ground. And that is the, the mourning, and understandably the mourning of disappointment. Another form of, of mourning that we are accustomed to, uh, that that is certainly ordinary in our in our day, is is when a criminal is caught and they are experiencing the loss of their freedom. Or when a corrupt politician is having their his or her power and influence taken away from them. There is a mourning, there is a sense of loss there. I'll just add one more just to kind of round this out. And that is that idea of mourning that some of us might have when we read something like this or we hear something this might be or the gloominess or one who is pessimistic like the eeyore of the hundred acre wood or puddle Glum of the land of, of Narnia where they go around and everything is glass at, you know, not even half empty but like, you know, not even a tenth of the way full or, you know, every cloud is sure to bear rain. Well, those are all, okay, fine. Those are all common reasons for mourning. And they're understandable. And, uh, and we're accustomed to them. But not a one of them has anything to do with what Jesus is talking about here. Not any of them. Uh, Jesus, again, he's talking about something very specific. And again, the first beatitude flows into the second. That is to say, there is a spiritual mourning for sin because of a recognition of deep spiritual emptiness and impoverishment. That's what Jesus is getting at here. A mourning for the sin of the world. As we look around, we see it's sin's corrosive effect, like acid eating from the outside in. Or sin in the way its effects are inevitable as we turn our back as, as a race on our maker's ways. And so as a culture, as a people, it, it's in typified by like an ethos of injustice and oppression. And so we mourn sin of the world. Not just that, but getting a little closer now. The sin of others, the people around us. We mourn as they have turned their backs stubbornly, hard-heartedly. And not just because of the hurt that they have caused us, but because we recognize that what they're doing is a symptom of something deeper and more sinister and more destructive, and it's coming out. It's coming out externally, and perhaps we're feeling it. But nonetheless, we then mourn, mourn the sin of the world, mourn the sin of others. But you see where I'm going, getting closer? Our own sin. We see God's commands. We see His statutes. We hear that, and we, we, we strive to obey and heed them, and then we inevitably fall, and it doesn't take very long, flat on our face in failure. And we recognize in that that we we are forced to see something of our own hearts. The wickedness, the bentness, the crookedness. We are exposed. Our chests are cracked open at that point. It's one of the functions of God's law, His commands in our lives. And in that we see all the more why Christ had to die. And so with that we mourn. We mourn. Who is Jesus speaking of here? Who is it that's blessed? Those who mourn for sin. That's what Jesus is getting at here. And Jesus himself, and we've talked about this already in the short time we've been in this little Beatitudes series, he himself is the only one who has ever lived this beatitudinal life perfectly. He is the only one who really encompasses what it is to mourn for sin. Keep your thumb here in, in Matthew five. Go with me to Luke uh, 13. A couple of places in Luke's gospel. I want you to see this. Luke chapter 13. Uh, Luke 13 verses 34 through 35, this is Jesus' lament over Jerusalem. Luke 13, 35. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And you would not. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now skipping over to chapter 19, Luke 19. Verses 41 and 42, this is in the context of what's sometimes called the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday. The king is coming into his city and he is in... This is sometimes often skipped over in talking about Palm Sunday. This is a weeping king. Verses 41 and 42, And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace but now they are hidden from your eyes. Jesus knew the sin of his people's heart and he knew what was coming. 70 A.D., the Romans were going to destroy it all. The horrors of that time could not hardly be told. Christianity, rightly understood, fully embraced, is really your best way of coming to understand what genuine mirth and deep laughter can really be. Now, why do I say that? Well, for one, because we're freed from taking ourselves so seriously. Two, we're also given an a, a, a end view, a joy that is coming, that we can anticipate where all will be made new and made right. So Christianity, rightly understood, can free you to experience joy and mirth, and I would even add belly laughter beyond anything that you can possibly seek after. But that said, Christianity is not all laughs. You know, there's no written account at all. I'll be very careful about this, but I do want to say it: there's no written account whatsoever of Jesus ever laughing. I'm not saying by that he never did. I don't mean that. But it is interesting. The one thing we read along those lines is what? John 11, outside the tomb of Lazarus, most, one of the most powerful verses in all of Scripture, and the shortest one Jesus wept. The emphasis is on Jesus as the man of sorrows, the suffering servant. Now, we need to reckon with that. Again, I'm not saying he never laughed. That's not my point. But the emphasis is something that speaks towards Jesus as the one who mourns. Who mourns over sin and its effects and its impact upon his creation and his people. The fall is real. It ought not to be minimized. It ought not to be played down. We ought to be people who know how to mourn. Jesus is showing us here. He's speaking to the way life should be. We need to be heeding this and pursuing it. That's the first point. Who is it? Who is it that he is describing here? Those who are mourning. Now, why is it then that these mourners are described as blessed? That's the second thing. Well, you just read the whole statement. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be Comforted. What we're seeing here clearly is that with this true deep mourning comes true deep comfort. From whom? The thing about comfort is it's a reciprocal thing. In order to receive it, there has to be another party that's actually giving it. Who's giving it? The Lord is giving it. The Lord Himself. Is giving this comfort. That is that is the promise that is here. It's interesting. Commentators, New Testament Greek commentators, will tell you that Jesus is using here a Semitic, that is to say, Jewish expression that makes clear it's it's not just you know kind of tangentially God's doing it kind of in an indirect way, but rather it's direct. He is the one who's directly giving this comfort in the way that this phrasing is is given as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1 he is the father of compassion and the god of all comfort and he is the one who is giving this comfort how will specifically through the spirit turn with me to John 14 through the holy spirit the god himself is the third person of the trinity John 14 uh, this is in the context of some teaching that Jesus is doing at the very end towards the very end of his earthly ministry just on the eve of his betrayal and crucifixion John 14 verse 16 he says to his disciples and i will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever now this you know there in in the ESV this greek word paraclete is being translated as helper if you've got a footnote and it takes you down to the bottom of the page you'll see it can also be translated because this word is complex in its connotations and what it means it can be translated as as uh, advocate or counselor. Older translations, I think it's the King James, also throws in something else, comforter. It's all of that. Yes, which of it? Yes. It's it's all of those things, the function, the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And you, you may note that Jesus says, I'm sending you another, meaning that just as I have been counselor, advocate, comforter for you, So too will He. So too will He forever. He's telling us that this comfort is going to come, again, not indirectly. It's not that it's being farmed out. You know, God is like, I'm going to, you know, hire a third party, some independent contractor to comfort my people. No. It's being directly given from the hand and heart of God Himself. But with what how will it come through what it means what message is he delivering here well not as we're accustomed not as we're accustomed not in in misguided comfort like job's friends uh, job's friends you may remember if you've read much of the early chapters of job they, they come alongside and the whole rest of the book is this going back and forth and back and forth and you know they started off pretty well just being quiet shutting up and just you know letting the silence speak and Job mourn, but they couldn't handle that. Like a lot of us, we just rush in to talk. We just got to fill in the space. Well, they filled in the space and were eventually rebuked by the Lord Himself for their ridiculously oversimplistic counsel. Not, this is counsel and comfort being given to us, it's not in terms of how we're accustomed, misguided, or lying. Lying counsel and comfort like the false prophets in Jeremiah's day who dressed the wounds of the people lightly by crying, Peace! Peace! When there was no peace. No. No, this is a comfort, this is counsel that is being given that is not according to what we're accustomed to, but it's given exactly as we need. Something, a promise being given. To those who will mourn, to those who will mourn over their sin, there is a promise being of something that you can look forward to, of a day that is coming when all will be made new, when all will be healed, all debilitating illnesses, all in sins, all sins enslavement will be healed. Something to look forward to, and something also to to lay hold of now. Pardon for sin, full, not partial, full pardon, get this, let this seep into your bones, full pardon for sin for everything you've ever done that you can have in Christ now. He's saying, Jesus is saying, there is comfort here that the mourner for sin can have as you look forward to what is coming and you lay hold of what has been accomplished for you and is yours now. Yours is comfort now. So, why are these mourners blessed? They have the comfort of God himself. It's interesting that in the ancient world, this concept was unheard of. It was virtually unheard of, in, to, in in the midst of life's trials and tribulations and struggles and angsts and pains and problems, to have a God of any kind that you could go to for comfort. I mean, it was understood, it was taken for granted that friends and family and neighbors would come and speak and sit with you and I don't know, bring you a, a casserole or something. And and but but you know that was. But not there was, no, there was no concept at all of being able to appeal to and invoke the comfort of a deity because that idea was completely foreign in the ancient world. And I don't know that we've progressed much since. Just in terms of how we live and what we think is there. We are, as a culture, as a people... Obsessed with what we think is, has, been, has been enshrined in our f- country's founding documents, the pursuit of happiness. Now, what it meant then and what it means today has been horribly warped. Today, it means that we will abandon our marriages for the sake of happiness. We will craft our career path with nothing in mind but happiness. Whole industries, whole parts of our economy are locked in on entertainment and the pursuit of happiness, which has no more roots than the tumbleweed in the old westerns going down the middle of the street. All of that, we are settling, settling for happiness when our Lord is offering comfort, Comfort, if we will but hear it. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Again, Jesus is showing us the way life is meant to be. Oh, that we would but heed and pursue that. Now that takes us to the last point, the last question. Not just who are these that he is describing, and why is it that they are being described in this way as blessed, but how could this possibly be true of us? Well, in two ways. One would be first in turning from the lies. The lies that are around us all the time that are basically all the same when it just gets right down to it. Now I'm going to use a couple terms here that are going to sound political to you. I don't mean it that way. They're just more cultural, more worldviewish type terms. Um, you can take them in a spiritual sense if you want. Uh, but here you go. The liberal perspective on this would be this regarding mourning for sin and all of that, is that, well, you know, there's really nothing to mourn. You've done nothing wrong. You've done nothing wrong, and so there's nothing to worry about. That's over here. Here's the other. Here's the conservative lie. And that is, well, you might have done something wrong, but it's not that big a deal. And if you just try a little harder, if you go at it a little better, if you just play by the rules... It'll be okay. Both of those are lies. What do they have in common? There's nothing to mourn. There's no sorrow for sin. There's no brokenness at all. They're lies. We need to turn from all of that folly and rather embrace the truth. That is to say that we have much to mourn. If we will look but around us and within us, we will see that there's so much sin to mourn. But not only that, the good news. The good news that Jesus, two things, shows us what it is to mourn and has mourned for us in our behalf, in our stead. He is not just our example and our model. He is our Savior. Our beautiful Savior. And in that, with that, He's saying again, those who will mourn, I will comfort you with a hope. A hope of a dramatic, full, thoroughgoing, cosmic, Change that is coming. Revelation 21. You can keep your thumb here in Matthew if you like. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 5. Listen to what John, really what Christ, is saying through his apostle. John 21, verses 1 through 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city. have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And the beauty of this, the results of this, is the extent to which we embrace this good news into our hearts. We, We can mourn. It's safe at that point to mourn. We'll feel compelled to mourn. Sin will break our hearts everywhere we see it. We will then mourn, but not as people without hope because we have more hope than anyone else. How, then, can this possibly be true of us? How can it be said of us that we are blessed, turn from the lies, and embrace the truth? Let me tell you just personally how this plays out in my own poor life. Years ago, I read an essay by C.S. Lewis called The Sermon on the Lunch. And what he's talking about there is the ineffectiveness of the ministry of a certain pastor at a local church that he was familiar with, and he was ineffective because of the inconsistency with the message that he preached and the life he lived at home. And that broke my heart the first time I read that. And I said to myself, "Oh God, I don't want to be that guy. You know, who's more, who's far less of a signpost to the gospel of grace in the lives of his children, and far more of a stumbling block. I don't." want to be that guy. But by except by the grace of God, I will be that guy. Because I'm a fearful man. I am an impatient man. And it's sometimes I'm an angry man. And But by the grace of God, I will be the sermon and the lunch guy. It will be me. And I mourn that. I do. Now see, here's the problem. Some of you are going to want to come up to me after the sermon or send me an email this week and say, it's okay, you're not that bad. Yes, I am. I am. And you're not doing me any favors by telling me that. You're hurting me. You're hurting me. I'm mourning for my sin, but not as a man without hope. I have hope. Like John Newton said in the later years of his life, I got the quote, although my memory is nearly gone, I remember two things. That I, have a, I am a great sinner, but I have a great Savior. I am a great sinner, but I have a great Savior. So, don't play this down in my life. And don't play it down in your life either. Blessed are those who mourn, who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This is what Jesus is showing us, is the way life is meant to look. That's what we need to be pursuing and heeding. It's not the pursuit of happiness. The pursuit of happiness, which... You know, it takes you down the path of glitter and glitz to party town. But rather, the pursuit of blessedness that takes you through the dark shroud of mourning to get the joy. You see, the way up is down. It's the way it always is. The way up is down. Or put another way. The greatest treasures are found at the bottom of the deepest mines. Let me give you an image. Let's say you're visiting a village in the mountains. And there in that village, you come to make two discoveries. You spend some time there talking with the locals, and you discover these two things. One, there is a mine up in the hills. And and that mine, there's a shaft. It's deep, it's dark, it's It's perilous. It's dangerous. And nobody can get back up once you get down there. But here's the the, the crazy thing. The tricky thing is, and the appealing thing is, oh, that mine is so full of jewels. There's there's a few scattered on the top. uh, There's a few more the deeper you go down. And at the bottom, it is treasure unimaginable. That's your first discovery. There's a mine in the hills. Here's the second discovery. There are two types of people in the village. One group has never ventured into the mine. Oh, they've heard what's there. And they've visited a time or two and scratched around the surface. But they've never been willing to go down, despite the promises of what's there. And because of that, they are barely scratching out a living. They are deeply impoverished and poor. The second group is wealthy beyond fathoming, and they delight to give all that they have away all the time because they've discovered the secret of the mine. They've gone down. And yes, it's true, when they got down there, they were too exhausted to get back up. They found treasures untold, but they had not the strength to make the ascent back up. But there they met someone, the treasure keeper. The treasure keeper who made the mountains, who dug the shaft, who built the village who owns all the treasure and who lives in the mountains, who will take you by the hand, oh, more than that, who will take you in his arms and carry you back up that shaft and laden you with more treasure and riches than you can possibly imagine. You see, the greatest treasure is found in the deepest of the minds. The question is, will you go there? Will you go there? Or will you be content to just scratch around on the surface? Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Let's pray together. Jesus, this is so counter to our inclinations. Um, That the kingdom of heaven could be for those who are absolutely empty and impoverished in spirit. That you come alongside and cherish those who are mourning their sins you are acknowledging the deep, real problems of their lives. Everything we think is a cause of the problem is actually a symptom. A symptom of the deeper disease, of the cosmic collapse, the shattering of how things are supposed to be. We would rather be distracted. We confess that. We would rather have much easier medicine. We ask that you'd help us to see and own the cause, that you would then take us to the cure, you, to rejoice in the gospel, the good news of Jesus, of you. And we thank you that you have shown us the way and you have saved us, that we might experience what it is to walk on that way. We pray that you would do that. We pray in your name. Amen.